0: Familia, bienvenidos a otro episodio, another episode of The Feature, where we highlight different ministries and ministers who are doing amazing work to address the culture. Uh, Today, we sit down to get to know another one of our scholars and residents. We're meeting Brother Nathan Cartagena. He's been on the Mestizo podcast. He's written for World Outspoken in the Past, so he's no stranger to you. But we still want to know more about his story. Nathan, welcome.
1: Uh, Gracias, Hermano. It's a joy to be with you. It's good
0: to it's good to see you again. It's not like it's been that long. We just had you on another podcast not even not even a week ago. And so this is this is always fun to do,
1: yeah. so that was a, that was such a good chop session, wasn't it?
0: It was amazing. You know, i had I had a friend reach out to me afterwards, uh, a mixed person mixed racially mm-hmm. reach out afterwards, just to say how blessed they were to receive and hear mm-hmm. that story. And mm-hmm. so so it was good. It was really good. Brother, the whole point of this is to get to know you better. So we'll start with real simple questions and kind of work our way toward your work in the Scholar and Residence program. So why don't we start with an easy one? Where were you born and where were you raised? Let's start with those simple
1: questions. Yes, they're great questions, and they immediately bring us into the complexity of, of being in La Frontera, in the borderlands. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, on a Navy base. And that gives you some insight into some of my family history. My dad was active duty in the Air Force at the time. His dad had been in the Air Force, um, found that being in the Air Force is one of the ways of uh, escaping some of the problems of of, of being a resident in in, and in, in Puerto Rico and, and trying to make it as a member of exploiting a colonized people. So my abuelo joins the the Air Force and... He travels around with uh, my uh, my and my my dad and my and my tio, Brent, and then my dad becomes interested in being uh, in the Air Force, and he joins. He actually ends up going to the Air Force Academy, graduates from the Air Force Academy, and is is active duty as an Air Force officer. And uh, he and my mom get married because my mom was actually born and raised in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The Air Force Academy is in Colorado Springs, and after they were stationed in places like Sacramento. Uh, They end up being stationed in South Carolina. So I was born, again, in in Charleston, South Carolina, in a Navy base. Uh, One of the things that's so striking about that is that I was born in a state whose perhaps most famous senator, John Calhoun, would have hated my very existence. (laughs) John Calhoun, when he's resisting certain efforts to take over Mexico, by the, the great white empire that is the United States. He ex- is explicit about wanting to make sure that the white purity of the United States is held. And he says, so look, look, our union is 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 for white people. It's not for, and he goes on to talk about these mongrel races. So he's thinking about all Latinos and Latinas. And so it's striking to talk about where I'm born because it, it actually brings together two important pieces for understanding uh, who I am. One is this nasty, long racist history of, in particular, Anglo-Saxon white supremacy. And, and you, again, you see how somebody like John C. Calhoun would not have wanted me to be there. But you also see these deep tensions with questions about U.S. imperialism. So we get the imperialism that John C. Calhoun is, is responding to, but we also find these imperialisms in terms of my own family's willingness or not willingness at different stages in its history to be a part of South Carolina. It's not where I was raised. Because of the downsizing practices of the U.S. military during the uh, late 80s and early 90s, my my dad decided, well, I'm going to get out of active duty and go into the reserves. And once I do that, I'm going to get what, in in military jargon, we're going to call a civilian sector job. So my dad ends up being an environmental engineer for multiple uh, power companies. And that ends up bringing us up to the Northeast. We live in Philadelphia for about a year, and then we move to New Jersey, and that's for the most part where I was raised, is in central New Jersey, right next to New Brunswick, very close to Princeton. Uh, and one of the reasons that's important is because New Jersey has a very different racialization history than, say, South Carolina. And it's important to recognize that New Jersey's proximity to Philly on the one hand, but especially to New York on the other, mm-hmm. makes it a place where those that are from Puerto Rico, who, for example, during the bootstrap movement, where there's a, a willingness on the part of the mainland United States to encourage people to come from Puerto Rico to get jobs and work in, uh, in factories, for example. Uh, well, uh, many of those sisters and brothers, Hermanas and Hermanos, they, they settle in places like New York, in places like Brooklyn. They, like, you got it. Yep. Newark. Exactly. So one of the things that ends up happening is many Puerto Ricans develop relationships of solidarity with African-Americans. And that shapes the racialization practices of all Puerto Ricans in places like New Jersey. So though I'm a lighter skinned Latino, my mom is Anglo. Her family is actually from South Carolina, Uh, even though she was born and raised in Colorado Springs. Both of her parents are from from the South. Her mom was born and raised in South Carolina. Uh, But... When we're in New Jersey, because of my dad's Puerto Rican heritage ancestry, because I'm Puerto Rican, because my last name is Cartagena, and because I'm you know I I was growing facial hair at a very young age, we could say <laughs> like, okay, this brother's not an Anglo, and we can't even pronounce his last name. And once they heard that I was Puerto Rican, across the board, whether it was African American sisters and brothers or Anglo sisters and brothers, at times even Latino and Latina sisters and brothers, they're just like, oh well, since you're Puerto Rican, you're black. Everybody knows that Puerto Ricans are black. So much of my childhood, I was racialized as black. And initially, I didn't know what to make of it. But because of the ways I was treated as one that was seen as a racially inferior male, as one that was constantly uh, had the N-word hurled at me. And when, frankly, when I was with African-American sisters and brothers, they would welcome me in with versions of the N-word. And like, no, no, you're down with us. This is completely fine that shapes my vision of what it was to be racialized in the United States. So I actually embraced being racialized black. And I talk about this in a piece that I wrote for World Outspoken, uh, because this was one of the very few communities, the black community in the United States that welcomed me. Uh, And one of the reasons that I think that happened is because as I've talked about elsewhere too, my family didn't pass down the Spanish language. And so if you're lighter skinned, your mom's an Anglo, and you don't have fluency in Spanish, well, there are certain kind of purity laws to get up and running where people want to know, are you really down with us? Are you really in for the right. struggle? Are you really one of our people or not? And so many Latinos and Latinas actually rejected me and, and my my siblings. And, and so it was frequently the, the African-American sisters and brothers that would welcome us. And uh, this led to me again embracing being racialized as black. And uh, that caused all sorts of problems. And, and Hermano, if you'd like, we can, we can talk about some of those problems. But I want to make sure you get to get get this, to direct a convo. No, as it, as
0: it would. It's interesting because your story reveals a handful of things. You talked about the bootstrap movement that caused the mass exodus of Puerto Ricans into the states, particularly into the East Coast, into Chicago, where I am, and other places as well. Um, we don't often also talk about how the military also caused a, yep. a great exodus of Puerto Ricans. And so your family reveals kind of both of these things. One, in in, in the military being part of that, what brought your family out from Puerto Rico, right. uh, from Puerto right. Rico, and also ending up in the East Coast, right? Ending up with, with another set of these uh, Puerto Ricans. Now I know from experience how how we... Uh, we Puerto Ricanos can be, our, our, Bo- our Boricua people can be related to these kind of tests that they give to Latinos. Talk to me about how these these places, these experiences, both with other Latinos, with the African-American community that received you, talk, talk about how that shaped your scholarly work. How did these things play a role in shaping the work that you ultimately pursued? This is a great question.
1: Hermano, I think it, it requires us to talk more about land in place again, and, and racialization practices in land and land in place. So I spoke about being embr- uh, embracing being racialized black, even though I was very light skinned. This caused problems in my in my immediate family, we could say family of origin, my, my Anglo mom didn't understand this was like, No, what's going on? My dad didn't understand most of the racialization practices in the United States. So he wasn't really sure what was going on either. But I vividly remember, when I went back down to South Carolina at one point, to visit my my mama who was visiting some of her family in South Carolina. And she and I are, are going on a walk and we're, we're thirsty. And I said, well, you know, I don't have anything to drink. You don't have anything to drink, but there's a gas station just down the road. I said, let's go to the gas station, get something. And my mama, which is one of the ways you can say grandma in the South. She's like, no, 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 we can't go there. That's a black gas station. And I quickly say, oh, don't worry, mamaw, I'm black. And 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 the people in the black gas station, they'll recognize that. So, so I'll go there cause I'm black. Uh, but you stay here because you're white. Everything will be fine. And she was pissed. She <laughs> starts railing at me. Who told you that you're black? And on and on this goes. And again, I've actually written a little bit about this for, for World Outspoken in the piece, uh, Don't Worry, Mama, I'm Black. Yeah, we'll Ooh. include that in the in the in the notes for the show. Oh, excellent. Excellent. One of the reasons this is so important is because few people loved me like my mama did. Few people. But I've realized at this point that all sorts of problematic racist discussions we had were leading to this perpetual boundary between me and Mama. So that all these modes of white supremacy, she was she was raised to imbibe and then to replicate because she was born and raised in the Jim and Jane Crow South had shaped her such that we could only have but so much communion and fellowship. We had communion and fellowship, true, but there were always gonna be limitations. Well, there are similar problems when I go down to, to to Puerto Rican, and I'm talking about being racialized black, because as you and I know, as our most of our audience going to know, colorism is a huge problem, anti-blackness is a huge problem. So when I go down there, and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I'm racial, I'm black because I'm Puerto Rican. All sorts of people, including uh, my 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 abuela, my abuela, are like, wait, como? <laughs> what's what's going on here? Yes. To get to the scholarship point, then, when my own family members are coming from places with different racialization patterns they're resisting blackness for varying reasons some of it's connected to anglo, uh, anglo conceptions of superiority some of it's connected to iberian conceptions of white superiority i'm trying to figure out how do i fit and it ends up that it's not until i'm i'm doing a master's at texas a&m that i meet uh, somebody who, who has had a great influence in my life even though we actually didn't get to spend a whole lot of time together and that's dr tommy j curry dr tommy j curry uh, is a He's now the, the founder of the Black Male Studies Institute at Edinburgh in Scotland. But he, at the time, was at Texas A&M, too. We meet at a departmental potluck. And as we're talking, uh, he introduced me to critical race theory. And I think he knew that because of the legal relationship that Puerto Rico has with uh, the mainland, that learning about critical race theory and the ways in which critical race scholars have thought about that legal relationship and how it shaped Individuals, lands, cultures, languages was going to be very helpful to me, and it was. And so I ended up doing research and race scholarship as what many scholars will say as an effort at me search. It's an effort at trying to understand how was I racialized so differently? Why is it that I I can't really find any robust sense of belonging in the very place that I was born and raised, and the very place where half of my family lives on my mom's side? But then also, why is it that when I go when I go down to Puerto Rico, there are also very strict demarcation lines that people want me to be able to uh, you know, test again, as we were talking about, you got to meet this. And if not, well, okay, we're going to keep you at at bay in varying ways. So I was trying to understand this. And I want to say this, one of the things that was a paradigm shifting moment for me was when I realized that the same Supreme court justices that affirmed Jim and Jane Crow racial apartheid throughout the United States, so you get Jim and Jane Crow, South Carolina. Those justices whose decision has a tremendous impact in shaping my mama, my grandpa, and all my mom's side of the family were also the ones that ruled in the insular cases. The same cases that are designed to make it so that Puerto Rico is gonna maintain a relationship to the United States where it will be a non-white place. It's yeah, part I'll of the time. Exactly, exactly. So I I, I realized, wait, it's not just general patterns of white supremacy, but it's actually legal patterns of white supremacy, institutional and, and systemic legal patterns of white supremacy that have shaped both of my families in profound ways. So one of the things I'm trying to do as a race scholar is note these connections and ask, how is it that we can grow in sanctification? How do we grow in terms of our union with Christ and our union with the church in a racialized world, in a world that's like what my family's experienced? Now, you raised the church there, which is great, because I wanted to ask you, we've talked a lot about your
0: family and where you were born, but I also do want to know about your church experience. Talk to me about how you came to faith and and how your faith experiences intersect with with these kind of racialized ways of, of understanding yourself and who you are in relation to your family, right? These things all intersect. So how is the church
1: interwoven as part of this story? As far back as I can go, on either side of my family, family members have been self-identifying Christians. They belong to different portions of the church. Some are Catholic, some are Protestant, some are uh, some, some are going to be within Protestantism, Pentecostal, Baptist, Presbyterian, etc. But because of my dad's military family, they moved all over the place and were simply trying to find what they would call a Bible-believing church as they would move. So my family on my dad's side, they didn't really have a lot of say in what kind of churches they were going to go into attend because as the military decides where you're going to go, you're just trying to find something. Uh, so, so my dad growing up experienced a whole range of different Christian traditions and that led my dad to say, okay, here, it seems to me are core essentials of the Christian faith. And then there are all sorts of things where godly Christians disagree. And so my dad's like, as long as I'm in a place where I find these core essentials, I think I can be okay. It's striking because my mom actually grows up with a similar experience. My mama had, um, suffered heinous abuse in the home that she grew up in. And so she was hypersensitive to, hyper aware of nasty power dynamics within churches. And she was especially attuned to ministers that wanted to build their own empires and wanted to manipulate congregants to do that. And remember, it's, it's my, my, my mama and my grandpa and my mom, they end up spending a huge amount of their life in Colorado Springs. Well, Colorado Springs becomes this place of an evangelical boom, where, where, where all sorts of groups that might have been initially in a place like Wheaton, Illinois, moved to Colorado Springs because it's cheaper, there's way more land, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, it's forms of Christian settler colonialism all over again. Yeah, the, but, radio stations were born out of exactly. that. Exactly, that's where yeah. you're gonna get focus on the family, et cetera. You got it. So at around the time of my mom's childhood, all these churches are popping up. And my mamma and my mom, in particular, my my grandpa's church attendance was was fluctuating, hit or miss. But they're that's going nice to a whole range exactly. They're going to a whole range of churches, trying to figure out okay, where do we think the spirit's moving? Where do we see people really loving Christians? Where do we see people engaged in discipleship? And and so my mom actually went to very different churches her whole childhood. So when they, my mom and dad, get married, that's what they're used to going to different congregations trying to find a place that's Bible-believing, trying to find a place where we believe the spirits at work. So fast forward to when we're in New Jersey, my parents are looking around and they're saying, wow, a lot of the churches in the area, they're not even preaching the Bible on Easter. Like, you could go through an Easter service and not hear about Jesus. How in the world is that possible? What they found, though, was a conservative Baptist church um, about 20 minutes away from where, from where we were living, and at least in terms of the congregation— the, the congregants, it actually was a kind of multi-ethnic church. So you had sisters and brothers coming from all over the place. And they said, okay, we, got, we have some diversity here, and we also have Bible preaching here. This is where we're going to stay. So I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up hearing the word preached every single Sunday. I grew up seeing sisters and brothers from all over, the country uh, and all over the globe, I grow up in a family that's celebrating varying traditions, and all this also shapes my research because it it shapes my desire to listen to sisters and brothers that the spirits at work in and all kinds of traditions to say what are the things that the God that God is revealing in and through you that are also supposed to be gifts for the rest of the church the
0: moving seems to play a role in that, right? The fact that your family had moved so many times creates that kind of um, expansive curiosity on some level. I think that's interesting. Uh, Brother, you're joining us as a scholar in residence. This is a new thing that World Outspoken is doing. It's a a privilege that we get to expand our ministry that way. Tell us why you're choosing to do this scholar in residence program.
1: Well, I have for a long time believed that if the Lord calls you to be a teacher for the church, which I believe that that I have been called, it's important to use your gifts to edify the church and its various forms, and also to listen to the church and hear what are the questions, the concerns, the issues, and then make sure your scholarship is informed by what your brothers and sisters are saying. And then you bring that into academic settings. So I I see myself as a committed churchman trying to bring the, the 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 gifting that I have to the church the ways that I'm able to read and to think and to listen and all the skills that, that I've developed I want I want to bless the church and I want to bless me gente with those but I also want to be blessed by them and then say okay as we're hearing from you all what are the questions what are the issues that, that those that the, that the Lord is called to be in academia for example need to Center and how is it that because perhaps we're we're often not as scholars, as attuned to the needs and the and the questions of local congregations of broader denominations. We instead get trained into certain literatures that say, oh, these are the key questions you need to answer. But they're often not the questions that the people on everyday life are, are trying to answer. So for example, when I remember I was in high I was in high school, it was a summer break, and I'm working with a lawn crew. And uh, all of us are Latinos from different from different parts of, of Latin America, but all of us are Latinos, and we end up going and and trimming some bushes at a parish house. And as we're doing this, it ends up that the the, the rector comes out of this house. And hang on, Nathan, I need to clarify because some 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 of our Latino audience might not
0: know what a parish house is, yeah, right? Please but, go but ahead. Of, of church tradition that may not exist. You mean you mean a
1: home that is offered to the, the the pastor or leader of the church that's there, correct? Exactly right. Yep. So you might have a a, a congregation has a church building and then they have a home that they that that the, that the church, as it were, owns, and that's where the minister lives. You got yep. it exactly. So we're trimming uh, the bushes at a parish house or in the backyard at this point, and it's all hedged in. It, it remind me a lot of uh, you know, some of the ways people might talk about an Edenic garden. <laughs> And as we're trimming, the rector comes out and, and starts cursing us out and it and, and gets to a point where he asks if we even have papers. So he means immigration papers. Can you prove to me that you belong in this country and that you're not just illegal? And of course, he would have said uh, illegal aliens and all these sorts of nasty racist idea, um, terms. And I remember thinking, as I'm suffering these forms of, of evil, I've not heard any sermon on how we're going to welcome the stranger, the immigrant, the refugee, and how we're going to disciple people who suffer that. And I'm not, and as as I kept, so that was in high school, but as I went through undergrad, grad school, unless I was engaged in a certain race scholarship, no one was asking and answering that question either. And so it became clear to me that the kinds of questions that many in Latino Latina circles are asking and they're hoping to hear a word from those that are also committed Christians, committed scholars. They're not getting asked, they're not getting answered. And as somebody committed to mi gente, as somebody that's committed to El Pueblo, I want to hear, I want to learn, I want to be edified by my people, but also want to say what what my people talking about. This is something we're gonna center. At least I'm gonna center in my scholarship.
0: That's very important, brother. You know, it's unique though. so let me ask, have there been any heroes or models that you look at to say here is someone who was doing that kind of centering of el pueblo centering of the people yeah. in in his research in his scholarship in 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 his church ministry or or hers, right? Uh, is there is there a hero or model that you look to to say I'm trying to do work
1: in 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 the vein or line of this person? That's a great question. So, the first person that that helped me to think about doing work for the people within a kind of tradition was actually the 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 Scotch Irishman Alistair McIntyre, who's uh, who, who's not known for promoting race scholarship, for example. Is author there, of After Virtue, right? Exactly. Author of After Virtue. He he taught at many schools in the United States. He, he's still still alive. Uh, he's now a retired professor because his last place was at uh, Notre Dame, so he still has connections to Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. But he was one who said, look, you got to pay attention to, to the questions that, that everyday people are asking because they're in your efforts to answer those questions, oh, you'll go a long ways. And I'll, I'll never forget, too, it was actually as I think about my abuelita theology, as I think about things that Mamá and abuela were telling me, and especially my bisabuela too, they would stress the need to ensure that I never got lost in the land of ideas, but that I always stayed grounded, always stayed, they, <laughs> they always ask, are you going to church? What's the church? Oh, I'm you, you, like we like, look, we're still at the same congregation. Yes. I'm involved in these ways. All right, hold on. Nathan, are you telling the truth? That's what it is. <laughs> this is the kind of question. <laughs> they wanted me to be connected in a thick in a thick way to, 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 to a congregation, to the people. And I remember all three of them would tell me, never lose sight of the people because the Spirit of God is at work in the people. And the Spirit of God is going to be calling you to pay attention to how God's at work in the people. So I said that because it was actually a kind of blending for me personally of the insights, the academic insights of uh, of Auster McIntyre, with my Abolita theology, it's like, oh, it could come together like this. Now, I also share to go back to my points about being racialized as black in New Jersey. I frequently came to Latino and Latina issues obliquely, so like indirectly, and I frequently came to them through historic prominent African American authors, for example, W. E. B. Du Bois. Tony Morrison, James Baldwin. All three have, have had a profound influence on me, and all three were deeply committed to doing scholarship and or various kinds of writings. When you think about Baldwin, um, plays, uh, novels, uh, essays, etc., all all three said, no, we want to we hear our people, we want to participate in the lives of our people, and we want to offer resources that are going to nourish our people. And they're actually some of the ones that helped me too, as I was in graduate school, to think through how this could work. And then I'll stress that for me, one of the other paradigm shifting moments came when I read uh, portions of of Gloria Anzaldúa's book, uh, The Borderlands, La Frontera. And especially when I read the chapter, How to Tame a Wild Tongue. And given my hard history, With Spanish and with language and the kinds of racialization patterns that I underwent, I went, "Whoa!" And there, one of the things is so important. So, at the end of "How to Tame a Wild Tongue," Anzaldúa says, "I realized that we Chicanos and Chicanas were a people when I saw our literature." She stresses the importance of seeing the product, the artifact of a people, and said, "Yeah, that's when I knew, like, yeah, we are a people. It's not just that I'm imagining it." And that really hit me. Because and I not th- just any kind of artifact, right? Literature, exactly. It's the story written, right? That, that's an exactly. important component there. Yeah, you uh, preach, Hermano. Preach. It's, it's it's the stories. It's the questions. It, it's 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 our efforts at remembering a whole host of things. Things that are good. Things that are bad. Things that are heinous. As as you and I uh, we're, were fans of, uh, of Hermano Justo Gonzalez, he'll say, "Look, we, we don't have innocent, innocent histories. If we're we're Latinos and Latinos, we got to know this." And 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 so, and she doesn't hide that. She's like, you yeah, know, it's it's nasty. But as I as I got to thinking about her discussion about once I saw the literature, I was like, yeah, we're 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 people. I thought, Lord, how do I contribute to the long tradition? It's not like these literatures don't exist for for Latino and Latina communities, for example, or for 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 mixed race peoples. But how, how do I contribute? to those traditions, those literatures? That was a key question for me. And that's one of the things that drives my scholarship. It's one of the things that drives my interest in being a scholar in residence for World Outspoken. I, I want to offer, given the kinds of gifting I have as a reader and a writer, a, a, you know, extensions and additions to those traditions, never trying to supplant, always trying to learn, and always as a faithful student of those traditions, critiquing and extending them. Because I love God and neighbor.
0: We, uh, we praise God for that and we're really grateful that you're gonna be contributing both to the church and the academy, challenging the academy to hear the needs and questions of El Pueblo. I have one last question for you, brother, and I know you've answered it indirectly a few times here throughout the the episode. You've talked a little bit about your family instilling in you the importance of being connected to a church. You've talked about how your family expanded your vision for church traditions and how that has expanded your desire to be curious about what others are thinking related to questions. But what are some of the virtues that are going to be undergirding the work that you do for
1: World Outspoken? Always a great question. I want to note two that people probably aren't anticipating, but they're very important for me. The first is mercy, the virtue of mercy. When we engage in merciful action, we enter into and in certain senses take on the sufferings of others. And as one that saw how poor whites were exploited and suffered greatly, with my mama's family, and as one who, as I looked at my dad's family, saw how people in Puerto Rico were continuing to be exploited and oppressed as part of this nasty Jim Crow regime of racial apartheid. I, I, I developed abilities to listen to very different racialized experiences, very different racialized communities, and and recognize that the spirit of God is calling Christians to enhance our capacities, to enter into the sufferings of a whole range of people, not to belittle them, not to try to create an oppression Olympics, but say, no, no, no. As there is suffering, As people suffer, there's Christ. Think about Matthew 25. And my call is to love and care for them. And as I do that, I'm also going to be able to see and hear Christ in varying senses. So for me, I want to listen, of course, to the joys of the people, yes, but also to the suffering because the suffering is sacred. And I want to ask, what are the pains? What are the traumatic stories? How do I hear those and how do I amplify your voice so that others know about them so that we might be able to resist and remediate? So resist the things that are causing those pains and remediate the things that are causing those pains. Various structures, for example, patterns of relating. So mercy is key because of my commitment to race conscious mercy. I spent years of my life, decades of my life, trying to love and care for Mama, trying to help uproot the ways in which white right supremacy was in, in, entrenched in her because she was born and raised in Jim Jane Crohn's house, but also deeply committed to thinking about the ways in which, for example, colorism and anti-blackness is entrenched in my abuela and my abuelo and say, okay, how do I love and care for you all and help to get some of that out? So I see whether they rec- recognize that they were suffering or not, that they were. And of course, there are times where they would just flat out talk about forms of suffering and I want to enter into those. So those are some of the things that, that, that those who follow us on World of Spoken are going to find. But here's the second one. Here's the second one. Perseverance. Perseverance. Paul tells us we must not grow weary of doing good works. And I want to stress that he tells us this because that's a perpetual temptation. When we see how enormous the challenges are, to love our neighbors well, to remain faithful witnesses for God. It is easy to have a certain form of fear, and that's the fear that, you know what, we're not going to ultimately run this race well. Maybe we'll have done a mile or two pretty well, but at the end it's tank. And Perseverance is that virtue that helps us to moderate that fear, the fear of failing to execute a lo- a, a, an enormous task that's also going to have a huge duration. It's going to take a long time. And in fact, you might be six feet deep and these problems are still there, but you're resisting and remediating all the time. So for example, as Christ calls us to care for the poor, he also says the poor are always going to be with you. Okay, if the poor are always going to be with us, how do we maintain virtues like perseverance so that we continue to love and care for the poor, continue to receive from the poor, the whole of our lives and not grow weary of doing good works. And I say this because I know that for many, as they experience forms of sexism, racism, classism, ableism, and they experience it day after day after day after day, they're wondering not only how long, but Lord, how will I survive this? How will I weather these storms? And so I'm mindful that for many of us, we're thinking about Psalm 23 a bit differently. We know that the Lord is calling us to walk through valleys of shadow of death. And it's in those valleys that the Lord is preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And the Lord is saying, you're going to sit, you're going to eat. This is where my presence is. This is where we're going to have fellowship. And yep, the the wolves, as it were, the enemies, they're all around. But you need to persevere in the belonging. You need to persevere in the good works. You need to persevere in the Eucharistic meal or communion, the Lord's supper, the Lord's table. So that's something that will also be a theme. How do I offer of resources to help the saints to persevere in good works in what is clearly an evil season. Amen, brother. Mercy,
0: perseverance, non-innocence, hearing the, the questions of El Pueblo, Uh, expanding with curiosity. These are all things that you've brought up for us here. We're really grateful that you're joining us, Nathan. You've been a friend to World Outspoken. We've been uh, excited to see you expand as you've continued to to bring clarity to really complex issues like critical race theory. We're grateful for your story, brother. And we're grateful that we also get to uh, introduce your voice to a Latino audience who maybe hasn't been the most welcoming uh, in, in certain instances. So we're grateful that we get to be a bridge in that regard as well, brother. So thank you for joining us for the Scholar in Residence program. For those of you that are listening, stay tuned for more work from World Outspoken from Nathan as he joins us. We'll be doing some really interesting things over the next year to to produce and respond to the questions of the people. Blessings.